Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. If you are struggling to hold people accountable, then we've got the show for you today, I promise you. So it turns out that it's going to take both compassion and accountability to be able to hold people accountable effectively. And that's what's going to drive performance. Our job today is to understand why both, how to do both, and how to make that turn into a greater performance. So my guest today is Nate Regeer. Uh, Nate has been a guest before on a podcast I loved talking about the drama triangle. But he is the founder of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership consulting and training firm that is really about helping build cultures of compassion and accountability. Formerly a practicing psychologist and an expert in social emotional intelligence, interpersonal communication, conflict skills, and leadership. And Nate is a sought after keynote speaker, recognized as a top 100 keynote speaker. He's the author of four books, all highly recommended. Number one, Beyond Drama. Number two, Conflict Without Casualties. Number three, Seeing People Through. And the book that we're talking about today, Compassionate Accountability. He also has a podcast called On Compassion with Dr. Nate and writes a weekly blog and a whole host of other things as well. (laughs) Nate, welcome to the show. Wanda, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me back. It's a great day and I'm really excited to be with you and your listeners. I'm delighted. I mean, I loved our former conversations around conflict and the drama triangle, and I must reference that show a hundred times in any given year because it's such good insight. But this one, I think, is so relevant. So before I dig into why I think that's relevant, I want to ask you why you write it. So you've written all this stuff on conflict and on drama. It's where you spent much of your career. What were you seeing that you thought deserved this book on Compassionate accountability. Wow. Thank you for asking because a year ago, right now, I didn't know I was going to write this book. Ah. At least not now. In fact, we were going to do the second edition of my previous or my two books ago, Conflict Without Casualties. The publisher, my publisher, Baird Kohler, had said, hey, it's time for a second edition. We thought, great, that's good. We've been holding compassionate accountability on kind of working on it behind the scenes. And then we just started looking at what was coming out of COVID and what was going on. And we thought, okay, stop the press. We have to change course. Compassionate accountability needs to be in the world. The world needs it. So we talked to our publisher, excuse me. And we asked them if we could change course and we sent them a proposal. We put it together and they, and they looked at it and they said, absolutely, absolutely. You're right. And so we wrote this thing in record time because it just seemed like, and we can talk more about this. It's, it's time for this book. This message is needed. Yeah. I want to know what you're seeing, but I'm going to tell you why I think it's so exciting is because either you have a culture that believes that we hold everybody accountable, you're accountable, you get it done or else. And it's a bit of an or else mentality, or it's a culture that says we care, we are kind, we don't want to hurt people's feelings. So there's heavy on the compassion and they struggle with accountability. And I just feel like everybody is anxious 
nervous is the word around, is my team doing what they need to be doing? Am I certain we're all accountable, especially as we have less face time? Now, that's my view. What are you seeing? I'm seeing the same thing more recently, but this, this trend has been building. And what we started seeing probably five, six, eight years ago that was just becoming so obvious was that compassion without accountability gets you nowhere. But accountability without compassion gets you alienated. And the younger generations are saying, I'm not having it. I'm walking if you're going to treat me like this. And this old school accountability at the expense of relationships is just not flying anymore. The pandemic really showed us that we cannot choose between one and the other. And so actually in the first chapter of the book, I I show a pendulum of compassion and talk about how this pendulum has been swinging back and forth. And we have really got, we just don't understand what compassion really is. And we need to upgrade. It's time for an upgrade and our world needs it. And COVID has really brought it to the fore. Right. I agree with that. I mean, I've never had as many conversations with people as I have in the last three years about show that you care. Um, have some compassion, some empathy, understand what's going on for people. I mean, that's true, whether it's your team, your peers, or I have a case at the moment, whether it's your superiors, a little compassion for what they're dealing with as well. And children and teachers and parents and and people in our community. And it goes on and on. Yeah. 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 All right. So uh, tell me how you define compassion. What is compassion? How do we know what it looks like? And then I'm going to do accountability as well. Sure. Well, we've been evolving our definition, refining it for quite some time. And the working definition for compassion is compassion is the practice of demonstrating that people are valuable, capable, and responsible in every interaction. And I just want to break that down really quick. Compassion is the practice of demonstrating. It's a practice. We are working on it every single day in every interaction. And then we have to demonstrate it. It's not just a feeling that we have. It's not just a a view that we have. We have to demonstrate it in our behaviors. We're demonstrating three things. That humans, every human, is valuable, capable, and responsible. And this is where the definition really picks up steam and really differentiates from what we've normally thought of as compassion. Uh, And then the question is, well, when? Well, in every interaction, every single time we are communicating with anybody, we have to be demonstrating this this view of compassion. So this is a mouthful. It's a lot there, but it really encapsulates where we think compassion needs to go for it truly to do what it was meant to do. Okay. So demonstrate a daily practice, every interaction, every conversation, every human being. Right. I'm showing that person that I believe they are valuable, capable, and responsible. Okay. It sounds lovely. Nate, how on earth do I do that? Because I don't always look at other people and say every one of them is valuable and capable and responsible. You know, it's hard. And we, all of us carry a lot of baggage and experience a lot of things, whether it's traditions, how we were raised, the role models that we worked with, the culture that we're in, the culture that we live in, our personalities, we all tend to go in one direction or the other towards compassion at the expense of accountability or the other way around when the chips are down. And so it really starts with, we just have to fundamentally make a decision. Am I going to treat you 
and myself as valuable, capable, and responsible. Do I believe it? Sometimes not. Some days less than others. Some interactions I don't want to. But if I treat you as if it's true, dramatic things can happen. And I don't want to call it so much fake it till you make it, but I think there's a, there's both a decision for you to choose what you do. There's a behavior and then the beliefs about how much you necessarily agree with that can come and go. That's part of being human, but we certainly can make the decision and we certainly can execute the behaviors. All right. So one of the things that strikes me, excuse me, is that I may say, I think you, Nate, are valuable in some ways, but I don't have to think you're valuable in absolutely every single possible way. I just have Mm. to pick one. Is that fair or am I wrong? Um, It's fair in terms of saying, yeah, that's what people do, but that's not compassion. Because if if I say you are valuable unconditionally, then you are always valuable under every condition. However, your behavior may not be appropriate. And the thing about compassionate accountability is that I can say, Wanda, I care about you. You are a special part of you, this team. And this behavior that happened has to stop if you want to keep your job because it's critical to the success of our company and it's continually putting us in harm's way or creating liability for the organization. So that's one of the main principles. If we're going to treat people as valuable, we have to separate the human person from the behavior that we're dealing with. Okay. So you as a human being are valuable. You as a human being are capable. You as a human being are responsible. Right. I give that. I grant that. And then we're going to talk about the specific behaviors. That becomes the accountability part. Am I now catching on to this? All right. So Nate, help me understand how to practice this compassion. It sounds like a lovely goal and I even I think I'm pretty good at it, but at the same time, with that definition, I fall short a lot. It's hard. And it comes to a lot of it comes to shifting our mindset about what compassion really is. And most people think compassion is, oh, I have empathy, my heart goes out to you. I'm gonna go alleviate your suffering, I'm gonna go fix these things, I'm gonna do all these magnanimous acts of of gratitude of generosity. That's not. That's nice, but that's not the kind of compassion that's going to get us through the day in a really tough setting. Compassion comes from the Latin root, meaning with suffer, with suffer. So the first thing to realize is I'm I'm choosing to struggle with you. You're struggling. I'm going to struggle too. And we're going to do this together. So we both have a part to play. And I think that that's important for us to recognize. We both have a role to play if we're going to do this. It's not me against you. It's not me instead of you. It's not you instead of me. It's us together in the trenches. So those, the behaviors that manifest that are specific to each of the three, sorry, for each of the switch, each of the three switches of a compassion mindset that we call it. Um, And I can give you specific examples about if I'm going to turn the switch of value on, then it's really important that I turn it on for myself too, not just for you. So if I turn it on for myself, what that means is I'm just as valuable as you, which means that I, it's okay for me to share how I'm doing. It's okay for me to ask for what I want. It's okay for me to be transparent. If my switch is on for you, then it's also okay for you to do that, which means I listen to you. I don't judge your feelings. I don't try to discount your experiences, even if I can't relate. And that creates that safe psychological space where we can move on 
to saying, okay, so now let's get down to tackling our problems. Right. Okay. So can you give me some example? You just did value, mm-hmm. but give me what the switch of sure. capability looks like. Well, the switch of capability comes with the fundamental belief that all human beings are capable of contributing under the right conditions. Because we all come to this, we come into these situations with experiences, with gifts, with knowledge, with, with learning, we, we can contribute. So when the switch is on, we ask ourselves, how can we create the conditions for people to contribute? Hmm. So one way is that if I turn my switch on for you, it means I get curious and ask you, what are you interested in? What are you good at? What do you like? What do you think? And most importantly, if we're, if we're really living out this idea of compassion being to struggle with, we are constantly trying to see how we can invite other people into the journey of problem solving. How many leaders, when the going gets tough, they either say, I'm going it alone here. I got this. Or they put all this pressure on themselves to be the solution, to have the solution, to have it all figured out. They stop asking for help. They stop engaging people. They stop trying to get anybody to be part of the solution. And then they wonder why everybody's resentful and complacent. So, so yeah, those are the kinds of behaviors that would turn on and keep on the capability switch. Okay. So I'm creating conditions that make it possible for other people to contribute. It means I'm asking questions, I'm inviting them in, I'm not trying to be the solo hero with the answer, the solution I charge out all on my own. I want other people to be part of that. Yeah. Certainly something I see all the time. I was just having a conversation about someone um, whom I have worked with who earlier made the mistake of having a vision and charging ahead with that vision and presenting that vision in strategic circles. And the team that was supposed to be supporting it says, you know, we've never seen it. So maybe it's good. I don't know. But you left us out in the field, you know, hanging. Yeah. That's what you mean, creating the conditions that people can contribute. Well, Ken Blanchard said it best. He said, people that plan the battle rarely battle the plan. And I think that's what you just described, is that when we are not including people to be part of the solutions, there's no ownership, there's no buy-in, and then it's about compliance rather than about collaboration. And how can we struggle with each other if we don't share the struggle? Um, Talk about the struggle. Make it possible. Contribute. And All right. So, yeah. All I was right. going to say in the book, there's tons of actual specific dialogue examples about what does it look like? What are some statements we can say that undermine capability? Um, an example, a simple one might be say, I see you struggling with something. And I'm, I come over and I say, here, Wanda, let me show you how this is done. And I basically just kind of take over the thinking for you. And I push a solution on you. I never asked you what you were doing. I never valued your experience. And I never let you take ownership over your own learning. Right. So what if I would come and said and said, oh, man, I hate seeing you struggle. That must be rough. If you need any help, I've been through this before and I'm glad to suggest some things. Okay. And All I right. shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Or maybe I ask a question that says, have you looked at X and leave it? I don't tell you how to go and do it. All right. Capable. So let's do responsible. What does that look like in practice? Well, here's the thing. Humans are not just valuable. The problem with so many inclusion DEI initiatives is we stop there. We just say everybody's valuable. Of course they are. 
but we're also capable. We're here to get things done because we're all capable, smart people. So how do we then create the conditions that everyone can contribute? But it doesn't stop there. Humans are also responsible because we are social beings, because we have to work together to get stuff done, and because we depend on each other in general just to survive. So we are by nature accountable to each other for our behaviors. So when the switch of responsibility is turned on, we we live out this fundamental belief. No matter what happened before, I am 100% responsible for my thoughts, my feelings, my behaviors going forward. No less and no more. And that's a real juxtaposition to when the switch is turned off. And when, when things go bad, we start to isolate responsibility and we start to point fingers and blame and maybe ourselves. Maybe we default to saying, oh my bad, that was probably me. It's like, you don't know that. You're pointing fingers and isolating responsibility. So that's the opposite of having our switch on where we share it by owning what's ours and letting other people own what's theirs. Can you give me an example of what that looks like? Yeah. Here's a statement I hear so often, and it's so irresponsible. How did that make you feel when she said that? Let's break that down. How did that make you feel when she said that? What's implied in that statement is that you are not responsible for your feelings, but the other person is. And what happened there is we got confused between who's responsible for what. They are responsible for their behaviors. You are responsible for your response. And so if my responsibility switch was on, I would have said, gosh, that must be hard. How are you feeling now? And what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. Very, very different. So that's a very simple example of just the common things we say where we're actually conveying that we're not responsible for our feelings. Or I'm so triggered. That really ticked me off. I'm so frustrated. All of those things are acting as if everyone else is in charge of our feelings. But the truth is they're in charge of their behaviors. I'm in charge of my response. Okay. They're in charge of their behaviors. I'm in charge of my response and my feelings. Mm-hmm. Now say a little bit more. How, you know, yeah. I'm, let's say I'm angry yeah. about something. How am I in charge of my feelings about anger? Well, let's say I'm really angry with somebody because of something that happened. Let, let's say I'm in a meeting and the, the dominant talker is always interrupting everybody and they're interrupting one of my peers who I think has so much to contribute, but they're pretty introverted and they don't speak up much. And it's really bothering me. I see this every day. And so I go talk to this person after the meeting and I say, I'm really uncomfortable about something and I'm, I'm angry and I want to talk to you about it. Here's what I'm experiencing in the meetings. And when you're talking and interrupting, my friend who has lots to contribute doesn't get to say anything. And so I want to talk about what ideas you have for how she can contribute more and how we can create conditions that allow her to be involved. So what happens is I owned my anger. I owned my discomfort, but I talked to him about owning his behavior. Okay. Now, is that taking responsibility away from your colleague who could? No, No, because my colleague is responsible for advocating for herself also, but I also can use my voice to advocate. Um, Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say, here's what you need to do and start telling him how to treat her. Um, Now, if she came to me and said, nobody ever lets me talk, he's always interrupting. What I would say there is, gosh, that's got to be so hard. And I'm here for you if you want any support. Um, If you want to go talk to him, I'm happy to guide you, but I'm not going to do it for you. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so there's many shades of gray on what this looks like. Mm-hmm. All right, so first, it starts with a mindset that people are valuable. Yeah. I have to have myself be valuable, and I have to believe that you are valuable. I turn both switches on, and that that means that it's worth listening to you, that I'm not going to judge your feelings about whatever it is you're feeling is your feelings, mm-hmm. and that I'm not going to discount your experiences, even if they're different than mine. Enough. I value right. Followed by a belief that you are capable, meaning if we create the right conditions, you can contribute. So it's about creating conditions where people can contribute, giving them opportunities, giving them, letting them hear about the struggles you're having, letting them be part of the solution. Yeah. All right. And then the final piece about this is the responsibility where I take accountability for my thoughts, my feelings, and my actions. I'm responsible for them. And I let you be responsible for your actions. Not You're not responsible for how I feel. Yeah. Responsible for what you did or said, but not how I feel. Did I get that? Right. If I got that Abs- reason, great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, what you've just summarized is really the only three role, three jobs of a leader. They just have three jobs. Create a safe place that people feel valuable create situations where people can contribute and learn and grow and get crystal clear about keeping the most important thing, the most important thing. Okay. You do those three things and the culture will thrive. Wow. That's pretty interesting. It also dovetails with one of my favorite theories. I don't know if you know this one or not. Um, Will Schutz talking about, you know, inclusion, control, and affection in his famous Fire B story, but particularly around the defenses. You know, we get defensive mm-hmm. when we don't feel significant, mm-hmm. when we don't feel competent, capable, and we don't feel liked. I might add yeah. that's a piece of the responsibility. It's interesting how much parallel there is between those two. Oh my gosh. Yes. And just, let's just take this one. I, when I, the very first one you said, I get defensive when I don't feel um, significant, significant. So let's say something happens. Somebody doesn't, maybe they discount me, or maybe they ignore me, leave me out of something. I feel like, and, and I'm, I'm, the story I'm telling myself is I'm insignificant. They don't want me around. They don't care about me. I'm not valuable to the team. So they did what they did. I told myself stories about it and I have feelings about it. So now what would it look like for me to take responsibility for my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors? Well, I got to own my feeling. Um, And if I am valuable, I have to first treat myself as significant by saying I'm significant enough to share how I'm feeling. I'm significant enough to let people know how I'm feeling and what I want And I'm also worthy enough to go engage in healthy conflict to try to solve this problem and advocate for myself. So I have to turn my switch on and actually be significant in my own eyes before I can start acting like I'm significant and trying to garner that from the people around me. Interesting. Okay. Nate, I have this feeling that we would be spending, could spend a really long time unpacking these in more and more and more detail. It's a tall order to treat everybody as if they're valuable, um, co- capable, and responsible, capable of contributing if I create yeah. the right, responsible with their thoughts and feelings and actions. Okay. Yeah. It is a tall order and we fall down every single day and that's okay. It's not about whether our switches come off. It's how quickly we turn them back on. Okay. 
say more about that. How do I get to turn? So I'm frustrated with somebody's mm-hmm. performance. Let's say, how do I turn that switch back on? Well, it starts with an apology. I, I think one of the best things to do, if I've left an interaction, I've realized, oh my gosh, my switch was off. I know. I can tell now by what I said. I see the impact it had. I can go back. It, I can turn my switch back on and go say, can I try this again? Or I'm really sorry about how how I acted. My switch was off and here's what I said. And I see the damage that it caused and I want to do better. And renew your commitment to that person and rebuild the relationship. Uh, it's never too late to turn your switches back on and go go make it right. Right. All right. Fair enough. And recognize we all fail at this every day and that that is the job of the leader is leaving people feeling valuable, giving the conditions for them to be contributing and take responsibility for thoughts, feelings, and actions. Okay. Fantastic. Um, Let's see, where do I want to go with this one next? Um, uh, We need to fit this together with where does accountability come in? Ah, Yes. How does this, like, I get this notion of compassion. Mm-hmm. I get this is a practice, is a daily effort, a nearly impossible standard to meet, but I keep working at it every day. Yeah. Now, why do you add accountability to that? Well, that's a huge word. And you started, you started our conversation by talking about this kind of old school view of you hold people accountable and you do it or else. And It's such an interesting word. Accountability and responsibility are two huge words, but they're different. And it's important that we get clear what they are. I want to share a statement and then break it down. A leader is accountable to their organization for their own behaviors that help others deliver results. Hmm. So a leader is accountable to their organization for their own behaviors that help others deliver results. So accountability means you have to account for a particular outcome. Everyone looks to you and says, did it happen? So you have to answer to somebody or something for a particular outcome. But here's the thing. You may not, you may or may not be the one that actually delivers the outcome but you have to answer for it. Everyone will look to you to make sure it gets done, even if you're not the one doing it. That's what accountability is, is you have to account. But responsibility is different. Responsibility is personal. Responsibility is what I have control over, which is my thoughts, my feelings, and my behaviors. So we are responsible for our own stuff, nothing more, nothing less, but we're not responsible for other people. So When we say, well, I'm responsible for you. No, you're not. You're responsible for how you act. You're accountable to X, Y, Z for that behavior, but you're not responsible for it. And this is where leaders get into trouble is when they try to take responsibility for someone else's thoughts, feelings, or behaviors, and then they they stop being accountable. Um, And it's for all those same reasons that you said, maybe I'm feeling defensive, maybe I'm worried about my image, whatever. So I cross boundaries and try to own stuff that's not mine to own. This explains a conundrum that uh, one of my clients recently had in this phrase accountability. I hear it all the time. So yes, we need accountable culture. Yes, yes, yes. And in a kind way. So compassionate accountability, we're all on board with that. Fantastic. But you're holding me accountable for the outcome of a project, let's say, that actually 50 other people have to do something on in order for that to work, for me to to check Mm -hmm. off that it happened. And I don't, quote, own 
any of those 50 people. They don't report to me. I don't control anything about their lives. So it's a classic matrix. And people get so stuck on how can I be accountable? And you just give an answer. Like, I can be accountable for the outcome, but I can't be responsible for what everybody does. No. And and then then so then the question is, so what do I do? Is like yeah. where where are my levers? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm trying to get them to do it, but I can't do it, but yet I have to answer for it, what are my options? Well, your options are to turn the switches on because the research is crystal clear that when people feel valuable and safe, when they're in an environment where they can contribute to the best of their abilities and we invest in them and when lines of responsibility are clear and we talk to each other about that, they will perform. And that's how you get the best outcomes when you do that. So even within a matrix organization, people with no direct authority can have significant influence on on other people's behavior by keeping their switches on and thereby be able to account for a good outcome. Yeah. So I love what you said there is that where are our levers to get other people to do things? And that's by turning the three switches on valuable, capable, and responsible that that is ultimately how you influence other people. It's true. And it lines up with all of the current literature on what the current and future generations want at work is they want to be treated as valuable, capable, and responsible. And when they are, they will stick around, they will work hard, and they they will want to be there. Okay. Valuable, capable, and responsible. Boy, sounds like um, pretty powerful uh, items, really agenda for anybody working with others, whether you are leading them or you're just working with them. And it's certainly, I agree with you, Nate, what the younger generation wants. All right. My guest today is Nate Regeer. The book we're talking about is Compassionate Accountability. So let's take a break at this point. And when we come back, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper in this accountability and how to use those levers a bit more effectively. We'll be right back. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back. With me today is Nate Regeer. The book that we are talking about is Compassionate Accountability. I should say Nate is CEO and founder of Next Element Consulting, um, which is dedicated really, truly to helping interpersonal communication, social, emotional intelligence, conflict skills, and ultimately leadership. And if you haven't seen any of Nate's prior books, they're also a treat, Beyond Conflict, I mean, sorry, Beyond Drama, Conflict Without Casualties, and Seeing People Through. Now, the whole principle here for compassionate accountability is you can't have one without the other. That accountability is about making sure that I deliver what I said I would deliver, but I'm responsible for only my actions, my thoughts, my feelings, Mm -hmm. and the levers for making sure that others deliver for me, influence to help others to deliver for my agenda is the compassion. And compassion is when I show every person, I demonstrate to every person every day in every interaction that they are uh, valuable, capable, and responsible. And that is a mouthful in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're good. That's a nice <laughs> summary. All right, Nate, I'd love to hear an example. Like, what does this really look like in practice? Okay. One of the most profound Uh, times when I really saw this working was we were hired to work with a a group of about 230 call center managers for one of the largest uh, car rental companies in the U.S. And these 230 managers were responsible for the, they were accountable to their, their employer for the performance of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reps that are taking calls and bookings every single day. And coming in, they were really struggling to meet metrics. They just weren't meeting the goals. And these managers were all like, hey, we're, we're being so kind. We're supporting our people. We keep giving them second and third chances. We keep suggesting things that would work, you know, giving them ideas and spoon feeding them, and they just don't meet the goals. Or maybe they do for a little bit, and then they fall back. And so what we realized after assessing the situation is they, these call center managers did not have their value switch on for themselves. They treated their reps as valuable, but not themselves. They weren't honoring their own frustration, their own discouragement, their own sense of being taken advantage of. And when it came to capability, they had their switches of capability on for themselves. They had all the answers, but not for their call center reps. They weren't, they weren't believing in these people to actually solve their own problems and figure this out. And their switch of responsibility was off altogether because they weren't getting crystal clear and enforcing boundaries. So we crafted a statement that they could say to their people that kept all three switches on. And here's how it went. Imagine a manager coming back to their employee who was not meeting standards and saying this, I'm struggling with something and I want your help. I've been feeling drained from our interactions and I don't feel effective as a manager. I realize that I've been working so hard to support you and solve your problems that I haven't allowed you or expected you to be part of the solution. So I'm interested in your ideas about how you can consistently close the gap. I haven't done right by our organization either because I haven't held myself or you accountable to meet its goals. Meeting your performance goals is non-negotiable and we have standard consequences that I will now begin to enforce. I care about you and I want you to be successful. Wow. When we craft, no, when we crafted this, you should have heard the, the the silence and the excuses. And well, but then, but what if I hurt their feelings? It's like, well, then your switch would be off. You're not responsible for their feelings. You're responsible for your behaviors to deliver on the goals. And 
so they started using this and it was just, it was like, it was like the clouds cleared in their relationships with these, with these people. So did the performance then turn around as a result of this, or did they find some people they needed to get rid of and move on or by and large, the performance improved considerably. Not, not only did, did the employees say, I'm now looking forward to my conversations with my boss because it used to feel like picking scabs. And now it really feels like we're in this together. So they, they actually looked forward to those interactions. The second thing is that people met and consistently were meeting their metrics more often. One of the chronic underperforming employees actually started like a like a listserv conversation where they were sharing ideas now about what they were all doing to be successful. They started owning their performance instead of leaving it up to their bosses. But it wasn't, wasn't until the bosses stopped taking responsibility for their behavior. Right. This is hand in hand with what I believe about effective delegation mm-hmm. and creating leverage. Because I think the moment you're trying to tell somebody what to do, or you're jumping in to fix it for them, to do it for them, then you've lost it. And also, I think delegation is not just leaving people. I would say we treat it as ditch and dessert. You know, like I'm going to pitch the task. Yeah, no doubt. I'll leave you alone because that's what I yeah. think I'm supposed to do. And that's not yeah. helpful either because I'm not creating the conditions for you to be successful. Not treating Yes. You. And here's a great example. Let's say I do delegate and let's say my employee says, okay, I'll do it. Now I have three jobs going forward. When I circle back, I have to circle back with the value switch on and say, how are you doing with this new responsibility? I care about how you're experiencing this new level of commitment. I have to go to, to, I have to turn my capability switch on and say, I'm here for you. If you need support, what resources do you need? What's going on? What questions do you have? And then I also have to be there and keep that responsibility switch on and say, are you meeting the goals? How's progress going? Are you going to meet those deadlines and remind them that it actually is their responsibility to get it done. Okay. All right. I think this um, and the statement that you just read from the car rental company is in the book. So anybody yeah. that wants to go adapt it for your own, I think is really interesting. Nate, you've talked about these three compassion switches and turning them on for yourself so that I, as a manager, feel valuable, capable, and responsible, mm-hmm. but turning them on for my employees as well. Yes. What's interesting in that story is in occasion, the managers weren't having it on for themselves. They were having it on for the employee and in places it wasn't on for anybody. Exactly. And that's, we have to assess all of those different dimensions because wherever the switch is for myself or other people at any given time, the behavior shows. And it's really easy to watch an interaction and say, okay, here's where the switches were. You can tell. And cultures, cultures tend to be characterized by whether one of the switches tends to be off in the culture. And and there's kind of three typical cultures based on which switch is just not turned on in that culture. Okay. So explain that. Give me an example of each of the three. Let's take a culture where the value switch is turned off. This is a results only culture. We are innovating. We are getting stuff done. We are meeting deadlines. Failure is not an option. I don't care how much you like it or don't like it. And if you, you should be happy to have a paycheck. 
Yep. Or that occasions. Uh-huh. Yeah. So then there's switches where the, then there's cultures where the capability switches off. And this is the one where there's no innovation. People are afraid to fail. No, people are basically, they, they care about each other and they're loyal to the mission or to the leaders, but, but they don't ever change anything. They don't take any risks. They don't try anything because it's just keep on doing the same thing and supporting each other. And then there's, and, and they just don't innovate. And then the third kind is where the, where the switch of responsibility is turned off. And these are the kinds of companies that they're shooting stars. They start great. And then when the going gets tough, they lose sight of what matters. They don't have principles. They start to make compromises and they just don't keep the most important thing, the most important thing. Okay. All right. Let me give you an example from one of my clients who will of course remain nameless because I don't want anybody to be embarrassed here. But they have, very, with great pride, a very caring culture. Mm-hmm. So it feels a little bit family-like to come and join this culture, and they want to continue that feeling. And that means if somebody's having a difficult time personally, they want to be able to accommodate that. They want right. to be able to accommodate flex schedules, all that sort of very caring culture. Great pride on it, and it shows through for their clients as mm-hmm. well. Okay, they are struggling to have feedback conversations. Struggling, can't yeah. get it. It feels rude. Yeah. You say somebody candidly to somebody, mm-hmm. you're not meeting a deadline. What's your advice for them? Well, the first thing is to re- is to compliment them and say it's an amazing thing that you care so much about each other. That's wonderful. And when you are not honest, with your, the people you love the most about what it would take to be successful, you are doing them a disservice and you're hurting them. However, that's easier said than done because the, the confusion has come between supporting somebody and taking responsibility for their feelings. When I'm afraid to have conflict because you might be upset or you might be anxious, or then you're going to think I don't like you. I am taking over responsibility for all kinds of stuff that is not my crap. So in those cultures, we start to practice what is, it, what is it like to talk about behavior while still honoring the human being and start to have these safe conflict situations where people are actually experiencing the kind of intimacy and trust that is possible when we have conflict. And interestingly enough, these super supportive environments, like you've described, they actually don't trust each other very much because you can tell they don't trust each other because they won't have conflict because they're scared of how the other person will respond. That's not trust. That's just not being nice. Um, And so we just invite those clients to say, look, you have a great foundation. Do you want to really start trusting each other and really start working as a team? It's going to take conflict. And on the other side, though, is some amazing stuff and we'll help you get there. Yeah, I agree with that. So do you think that this is a case where, so they've got the caring switch, the value switch turned on for sure. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like they have the uh, comp- capable switch turned on because they're assuming they can't create conditions where people will get better. Yeah. Well, let's let's take it. Here's my switches. I have them all right here. Okay, great. I made my own switch. So in this situation, we would say the value switch is turned on all the way for others, mm-hmm. but not on for ourselves because we don't value our own angst and anxiety because we won't talk about it. Um, the capability switch is only about halfway because if I'm not going to talk to you about your performance, then I'm sending the message that I don't believe you could improve. 
So, and the responsibility switch is off completely because we are not taking, we're so confused about who's responsible for what, that we don't even know how to have the conversations and we don't want to talk about the most important things. And meanwhile, the company's suffering and, and the, and the, the bottom line shows it right. And the, and, and the metrics are tanking and we just keep doing the same thing. So the responsibility switches off. Right. I think this is also a culture where they're managing to recruit great talent. People like the idea that this environment is so caring. Yeah. But then you get disillusioned quickly. Yeah. You realize that, that, that we don't really pursue excellence. We don't help each other improve. We don't, we're not striving to get better every day. And that there's all of a sudden all these things we don't talk about. And Today's in today's employees, they want to be candid, they want to be transparent, they want to tell it like it is, and they want to know that you've got their backs. Um, so yeah, I get I get why people would get disillusioned over time. Right. All right. You've said this several times, Dana. I'm gonna circle back on it. We're talking about multiple generations at work, particularly yeah. the younger generations, millennials and Gen Z. And there is so much commentary among Gen X and some baby boomers about uh, not liking this generation. Right. And that is not going very well. And if I follow your model, what we're saying is that person is either not valuable or not capable or not responsible. And what I'm hearing most often is the not capable and not responsible switch is turned off in terms of dealing with generations. And according to you, that means I'm never going to succeed with those younger generations until I learn to turn all three switches on for them and for me. Well, yes. And (laughs) when we work intergenerationally, we we really have to treat each person as a unique individual. Let's say the young one and the old one, and they have to work together and they they just don't respect each other. And they both think their other one's crazy, right? So the, let's say the older person has their switch of capability turned off for the young people. They don't know what's really going on. They, They don't understand the history, blah, 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 blah. They just think they should have a raise every five minutes, you know, whatever. And then the young person, it has their capability switch off for the other person saying, you can't learn anything. You never want to change. You know, if you would just get on board with this new scheduling app, we can save an hour a week, but you refuse, right? So what if we focused more on each other, on ourselves and said to the older person, you are capable. You have so much industry experience that you could teach other people. You have so much amazing knowledge that you need to transfer. You're capable So let's create the conditions in which you, the other people would be open to hearing what you have to offer. And we go to the younger person and say, gosh, you have so many cool things you could teach this person. I wonder if you got more curious about their worldview, you might be able to learn how they learn and they'd be open to you teaching them. And so now we start creating mentoring relationships where people are teaching each other what they don't know. Um, But it starts with me turning my switch on. Okay. And you started with capability on that one. I did on that one. That was just an example. Okay. All right. But you yeah. think it's all three of them. I get that one. Okay, yeah. Nate, I want to shift gears now a little more philosophical. Why do you think we get so polarized? Mm. Or emphasize capability or we emphasize accountability? Where's this polarization coming from? That's a great question. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot. And there's been a lot going on to kind of to, to speak to this. I think... One of the big ones is that we don't have a good understanding and and experience of compassion. 
And I've actually have five chapters in the book. The whole last section is overcoming barriers. And it speaks to some of our misconceptions and misunderstandings about this word and what it is that lead us to go to our corners or lead us to run away from it. Um, and it just becomes polarizing real quick. So for anybody who has experienced that polarization you're talking about, I think the last five chapters could be really, really helpful. Um, I think also there's a lot of conditions that that would invite human beings to run to their corners and go polar, polarized under stress. Traditions, mm-hmm. how we, what messages we learned growing up, inertia, what we've been doing, the culture, whether it's the work culture or maybe even the socioeconomic culture or the geographic culture, ethnic culture has values about what you do. Um, I think old school business cultures are hanging on within you know, they're prioritized results over relationships, uh, although we're starting to see that give way. So there's that. Um, and then I think the whole inclusion movement is, is a powder keg that is, that is either going to blow up or we're going to transcend it. It is so great to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but we have to get beyond just seeing people as valuable. That's the table stakes. That's the lowest common denominator is that we are all valuable as human beings. We have to go to capability and say, so now how are we going to help you contribute? And then we have to go to responsibility and say, then how do we hold everybody equally accountable and start to really get clear about who's responsible for what so we can thrive and start leveraging diversity instead of just tolerating it. And then look at the public. Oh my gosh. it's become, you can make so much money now by just creating divisiveness. And this whole idea about setting everything up as a win-lose situation is you couldn't get further away from what compassion is. Cancel culture is the antithesis to compassion. So everywhere we look, we're just seeing these role models that are making a living off of division. Yeah. Um, and so I guess we just have to stop, stop giving it attention and stop playing the game. Don't we wish? Don't yeah. we on that one? So if you're, you know, I'm going to take up your notion that um, in the DEI, which I have care about and it's an important agenda and been participating in, all sorts of good things can come out of it. And I have believed for ages that diversity is a counting exercise. Do we have enough of different categories? Mm. Real prize is one from inclusion, mm. from where people feel a part of belonging to contributing to so what's your advice for people who are trying to create a more inclusive culture well guess what i think it is there's three things (laughs) treat people as valuable treat them as capable and treat them as responsible it's the responsibility one where people get scared Because we're trying to include, we're trying to get the numbers game. We're trying to make sure nobody is ever offended. We're all aware of all of our, of all of our unconscious biases. And then we come up upon a situation where there's actually a performance problem. Oh no. How are we going to talk about it in the context of inclusion for fear of somebody thinking that, you know, we're, we're picking on them for some reason, you know, because they're a minority group. Those are hard conversations to have. And You wouldn't believe how many DEI leaders I talk to that say, okay, we've done the training, we've we've done all the things, we've got everything in place, and we still don't know how to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. I'm a white male with a ton of privilege. I don't know what I don't know. I have so many unconscious biases. So 
I've gone through the training. I'm scared I'm going to be walking on eggshells. And all of a sudden I, I say something and I realize, crap, I put my foot in my mouth. That was so, I, I could just tell by the response. I really botched this. How do I have the next conversation with that person? Who's teaching me how to do that? Who's teaching me how to go with my switches on mm-hmm. and their switches on and have a real conversation about what happened between us, what I don't know and what I can do and how we can have a new contract in our relationship going forward. I think that's what's missing. And that's where compassionate accountability can help us really take inclusion all the way to where it needs to be. Wow. That's a pretty powerful statement, Nate. And if nobody takes anything away, I think there's answers for what we really need to be doing on our teams to build that kind of culture where people can show up, can Mm -hmm. say what they're thinking, can contribute, can and are held responsible for their actions. Not that I'm trying to take responsibility for them. They're responsible for their actions. And more importantly, I think what underlies all of this is we have to be willing to have the conversations. Yes. Not easy conversations, because that's where, as you've said many times, where the trust really comes from. We have to start struggling with each other instead of against each other, instead of for each other, instead of instead of each other. We have to struggle with each other and share that struggle. Powerful statement. So much to take out of this, Nate. So the three switches, again, just to reemphasize, I treat myself and everyone I'm interacting with every day. I demonstrate to them and to myself that they are valuable, that they are capable, meaning we're, we are creating conditions where they can contribute, and that they are responsible for their actions, thoughts, and feelings. I'm responsible for my actions, thoughts, and feelings. You're responsible for your actions, thoughts, and feelings. That is the environment that is going to create thrive performance. And it's in that that we can create a culture where we're accountable for getting things done. Absolutely. Great. All right. Nate, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to get you? I would just say uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn and other places, Facebook, and our the, the website is compassionateaccountabilitybook.com. Everything you could want is there. And please buy the book, read it, and I'd love to hear your feedback. Fabulous. Really looking for this has been a great book too and a great conversation. My guest today, Nate Regeer, the book we've been talking about is Compassionate Accountability. I recommend you check it out. And if you'd like to know more, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And we'll see you next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.